0: This lecture is about text. And when I said to someone uh, yesterday, "I'm giving a lecture about text," they automatically assumed that I would be talking about the uh, short message service that we have on our mobile phones. And they said, "How?" Firstly, they said, uh, "Oh, computer science, how boring." And I thought that was hardly a, um, hardly a rave review. And then they said, "Oh, text, what, what you, can you possibly say about text that hasn't already been said?" Actually, I don't want to talk about the short message service. I thought it is an example, though, of how text is so persistently used by us humans. We love the stuff, you know, we we use it for communication. It's the favoured form of communication for intelligent people, text. And it's not entirely obvious why text is quite so uh, popular. So I thought I would start by just um, observing that actually the earliest computers were not intimately coupled with text. Uh, this is Univac, which is, well, people will dispute about the history of computing, don't they? But this was probably the first commercial computer. Um, and I, as far as I can tell, I'm not an expert on the history of technology, but I did scour the libraries for photographs of every early computer I could find. And this was the first one to have a QWERTY keyboard on it. Here it is. Doesn't it look marvellous? This is the operator's console of Univac. I, I have a real feeling I would like a Univac in my briefcase. You know, It looks very impressive, and I love the little meter up here and the valve heaters down here. Um, it doesn't yet have a display unit, or a VDU, as we used to call it, a visual display unit. Um, and the reason was, of course, early computers... Uh, were generally programmed using punch cards or tape or punch tape, and the keyboard, if it was used at all, was used to uh, change to to make alterations to the programming uh, device. It wasn't used to directly communicate with the uh, with the computer. And what happens, of course, in the early keyboards was, it isn't obvious here, but there would be eight wires, or maybe even fewer, that ran out of this keyboard. And as I pressed a particular key, I would set a pattern of zeros and ones on the uh, on those wires. And that's called a, a code or a map. Okay, It sort of maps the characters into some sort of digital code. So if we took some example text, and this is just a little bit of text I... I uh, copied from uh, wikipedia at a low level what we would see for each one of these characters is a binary digit or if you because it's a bit boring to write binary you know we'll often write it as decimal or hexadecimal or something like that so the code that is was commonly used in my youth was known as the ASCII Uh, Code, the American Standard Code for Information Interchange, is what it stands for. And each letter is given a binary equivalent, and I could have converted that binary into uh, decimal or hexadecimal. Um, Most of us remembered the hex, so I is 49, N is 6E, everyone remembers space, which is decimal 32 and um, uh, hex 20, and so on and so on and so on. So that's that's the coding. system of the past and of course it led to one of the best jokes on the planet this is a joke that can only be understood by British computer scientists who are over the age of 50 uh, which is a narrow set of people uh, a narrower set of people and the joke is Arthur Ascii, what a character Yes, there's a group, uh, for those of you who are online, there's a group of, in the audience who I'm sure don't mind me saying are, are of a certain age to know who Arthur Askey is. Um, Arthur Askey was a, was a sort of character comedian uh, from the early, uh, early years of British, uh, British comedy, and he was a bit of a character. And of course you have to know what Askey means. Anyway, let's not explain jokes to people, but it, it is one of the most niche jokes that uh, one can make. Uh, When I told my friend Andy Stanford who is the technical director of IBM UK, that joke, he's my age, he thought it was hilarious and I I had to pick him off the floor. I told my wife and she didn't get it at all. Um, So, fair enough, that's because my wife's too young. Now, in the real world, of course, um, it's probably worth saying that if you were working in computers when I was a kid, effectively you had to learn American because it was the American standard code for information interchange and it had you know, American alphabet um, which as we all know is almost identical to the British alphabet um, but it certainly wasn't very international. Now this is the first, I think I did about 2,000 uh, first 2,000 uh, characters from Unicode which is the uh, current standard for, for character mapping. This is Unicode 12 12.0 which represents around 140,000 uh, characters across uh, a large number of languages. Not all languages are coded, uh, but it's a pretty, a pretty impressive attempt to try and code a lot of uh, the world's languages. It is not without controversy, actually. Um, there, very early on in Unicode's history, uh, there was an attempt to deal with um, Chinese, Japanese, Korean, and to some extent Vietnamese Characters, all of which, as I'm sure you know, are, are stroke based. So uh, the observation was well, a lot of these characters share strokes, so we can share some of the codes in order to encode them. Uh, that proved to be somewhat explosive, and um, there is still a little bit of, um, well, not a little bit, there's some mudslinging and some debate about uh, the decisions that were made early on in uh, Unicode. For those of you who are interested and can read Japanese um, I'd recommend a technical memo on the matter from uh, the uh, Japanese uh, computer manufacturers uh, which has a wonderful title which is translate- translated for us in Wikipedia as we are feeling anxious for the future character encoding systems well you know that is another one of them that's the winth the prize for the world's most niche title doesn't it um Uh, So, also surprising to see that the the aggravation is coming from Japanese scholars, and their their observation is there are quite a few old characters in Japan which aren't properly coded by Unicode. Right then. Okay, all of which was one of Richard's little diversions. I want to get back to this business of of code uh, equaling characters, equaling numbers. So, these codes are flowing through the, the system, and they're being pumped through computer systems like like blood, systolically. So what could we do with these characters? Well, the simplest thing, and I talked about this in my first lecture when I was talking about information, is just to count them. So this is a count of all of the characters in the uh, British language. Um, Here are the characters along here. I've ignored the upper and lower case, and I've ignored punctuation. And this is a... The frequency of those characters. Blue is English. So, looking at the most common character in English, which is E, we get the immortal phrase which everyone knows, and everyone in this audience knows because it was mentioned in the first lecture: Etoween Schlerdlu. Etoween Schlerdlu. Everyone knows that Etoween Schlerdlu is the order of uh, English characters by their frequency: Um, E-T O-A-N S-H-R-D-R-U Okay. Now and in uh, red here is another language can anyone guess what that language is it's a chari- it's a language that shares most of the characters with English although it does have a few of its own right. yes absolutely right the person who cried out French is uh, uh, has done an excellent job okay uh, and the clue is here okay there's a very big difference in H use in the English language from uh, uh, French speakers. French speakers are not very enthusiastic about the, the letter H, as we as we all know. Uh, so that's a clue to uh, one of the uses for um, unigrams, which I shall come back to in a moment. Well, unigrams are a sort of technical word for single characters, and if we were to measure pairs of characters, they'd usually call those bigrams, character bigrams. Okay, and these are the character bigrams in the uh, English language so th h e e r and so on when you look at these these are the very common suffixes and prefixes that you find in the English language uh, is it obvious but uh, perhaps it, perhaps it's not obvious let me just say it the frequency of these things is considerably lower than those of the unigrams and there's a there's a reason for that and that's because there's just a hell of a, lot, hell of a lot more of these things. So this was realised quite early, actually, this idea that you, these unigrams, bigrams, trigrams, quadgrams, if you prefer the general n-grams, okay, an n-gram is just some, a combination of n of these characters. This was realised quite early on in the history of computer science that these things were likely to be quite interesting. And uh, one of my favourite papers on this comes from 1994... It's by Bill Kavanagh and, and John Trenkel. Um, and it, it, what they did was rather cunning. They, they measured the frequency of all of the n-grams in documents. So I think here they probably were looking at the first uh, hundred thousand, uh, sort of hundred thousand characters. So they're measuring frequency here in absolute terms. And um, perhaps it's not so obvious. I've copied the paper direct in the interest of authenticity. I've copied the. the uh, the, the diagram straight from their paper. Perhaps I should have done my own. But there's this very steep decline here. Now, this shape here, which, isn't it, which is um, very common in information retrieval and library science, is known as Zipf's law, Z-I-P-F. And Zipf's law has this steep uh, curve, and the probability is proportion inversely proportional to the rank of the... Uh, the thing down here now what they observed was that when we look at this here these first few characters they are the unigrams so they are the most common things and then the next most common thing down here they're the n-grams. The, they usually consist of function words and common prefixes and suffixes and broadly speaking they say the first 300 of these depend on the language that's being used and then down here we get dependence of the dependency on the uh, the domain what the document is about uh, the the author and so on Uh, and that's how you spell zips law zips law comes up a lot it's very very common in in these things and it's just an experimental observation it doesn't have a uh, much of a theoretical basis at the moment Okay, so if you want to build a language identification system, what you do, they say, is you just select the first 300 of these, and they give a nice little algorithm for selecting these things. It's quite easy to build. And you build a little signature, you compare them, and off you do the language identification. And if you're using a language ID system uh, at the moment, and you probably are if you type in some... Um, some German or Hungarian into the web and it, it automatically adjusts its language, then it's almost certainly using this system. It works works really well. Now, there's a, there is a problem with this uh, method, the n-gram method, though, and it's called the curse of dimensionality. And the problem works like this. Let's say we had 26 letters. Well, you can imagine implementing that. 26 counts is fairly easy to to implement, um, so we get some text and we go through it and we count each one of these uh, letters. And because there's only 26 of them, let's say 21 if it's French. I mean, but you know, it's a small number. We can easily just rattle through and get a count. And we don't need that much text to get a count. Cool. So that's why unigrams are used for, for text. Uh, as soon as we've got bigrams, we don't just have 26 counts. We've got 26 times 26. Uh, counts so six hundred and seventy-six counts, um, and if we have trigrams, we've got twenty-six cubed counts, seventeen thousand counts, and twenty-six to the four is half a million. So you can see the problem: the data structure that you're using to store this gets big very quickly. Now, half a million, whatever, half a million. Who cares about half a million? That's not very big, and you know, I can fit that on my mobile phone. The issue is because it's a histogram there's a general rule of thumb that probably for every bin you need 10 data points. So if we've got to fill half a million uh, entries in a histogram, then we're going to need uh, 5 million characters. And how many characters to a page? About 2,500, doesn't it? So every two pages you've got 5. So so you need 2,000 pages of closely written text in order to to build the data you need for just a... You know, a quadgram, which isn't very much. A quadgram doesn't even capture lots of words. And so this problem comes up a lot in computer science, the curse of dimensionality. Um, and it has. it's a twinfold curse. One is the data structure's a bit big, and the second thing, it takes a lot of things to, to fill it. However, I have introduced something that is potentially quite handy, which is... I have sort of converted this great big lump of text, pages of text, into, in this case, only 26 numbers, or in this case, 676 numbers, and in this case, 17,000 numbers, and so on. So what I've been talking about already can be thought of as a, a mapping, really. So I'm moving from a piece of text through to a fixed set of numbers. Okay? And we would call this a, a feature vector, normally, It's just so if if it was the uh, unigrams, these would be 26 counts that represent, say, the letter frequencies in this bit of text over here. Now, in the previous lecture, we were talking about deep learning and a type of artificial intelligence called pattern recognition. And what I said in that lecture it doesn't matter if you weren't there, but, but the essence of the lecture was: if you can get your problem into this form then we can learn the relationship between this and some sort of class you know some some sort of output so this is potentially helpful when thinking about modern text systems they've essentially got two stages one is text to feature and the next stage is feature to class or problem solution that last bit feature to class that's ai right i'm just going to put that in a big black box for the time being and say that's machine learning already discussed other many algorithms for doing that now that might seem a bit primitive but that actually that that ladies and gentlemen that was the 10 minute version of this of the whole of the text processing information retrieval class okay if you can get some number that represents this then you just boot it down the down the road to a machine learning thing and you're you're sorted right then what are the choices for uh that number well we talked about these N-grams are an example of something called a um, a bag of words model. Um, unigrams are perhaps the easiest one to think about, but I've been ta- up to this point. I was talking about unigrams for characters, for individual characters, but we could also have unigrams of words. So we'll just count the number of words. A slight problem with this, you know, English in particular has quite a few and greek to take another one that has quite a lot of words to choose from so we might have to throw some away might have to restrict the set and the bag of words model which you'll hear sort of banded around in um, trendy machine learning circles is essentially a word count okay so um, uh, uh, i killed robin for example is treated identically to Robin killed I in the vast majority of machine learning systems that use bag of words model. So already I can see you sort of recoiling at the simplicity of this because uh, I killed Robin most definitely doesn't mean the same same thing as Robin killed I, even if Robin killed I was grammatical. It certainly has another meaning. But for any bag of words model, and they're very common at the moment in machine learning, then they do mean the same thing. They are just counts. OK, so that, that's a little bit of a buzzword, really, the bug of words model. What I'd like to do is just quickly tell you, though, about two others. These are two ways of trying to convert text into this list of numbers. So they're text to vectors. I'm going to tell you about one that is a sort of bit of a historical curiosity but doesn't really work. That's called latent semantic analysis. But it's quite neat and it comes up a lot in the literature, so I thought I'd talk about it. Um, and then I'm going to talk about one that really does work and is used very extensively in modern systems. Uh, I should say, in computer science, modern, by that I mean word to vec, uh, probably dates from 2013, right? So it's very unusual in computer science to be very interested in anything that's older than 10 years. You know, if you graduate students frequently say, Oh, I've been reading this paper, and the first thing you do is look at the date on the bottom and if it's older than 10 years old you say it's rubbish you know I mean, it's, it's a first to a first approximation it will be it will be tat um, but LSA is quite instructive and it is a bit antique so I'm going to but I'm going to talk about it uh, partly because I'm antique and partly because it's kind of an interesting little diversion and it has an interesting history so latent semantic analysis or LSA has interesting uh, history it, it was really thought of by an American psychologist called George Kelly. And Kelly was around uh, when, I don't know if you remember, but psychotherapists in the old days, I'm sure they don't do this now, used to sort of declare which tradition they were from. You know, so they would say, well, I'm a Jungian psychotherapist. Oh, I'm a Freudian. You know. And Ke- Kelly found this rather annoying because it would mean that a person who had uh, some sort of condition got a different... Description of that condition, depending on who was talking to them, it was most peculiar. It was like using a ruler to measure something, except the ruler was made of rubber, you know. And so, depending on who was using the ruler, uh, you got a different answer. And he thought, "Well, this can't be right. Um, you know, th- there must be some inner truth uh, or personal construct, which is what he, the patient is feeling." And my job is to try and reveal what that personal construct is by looking at these multiple answers that I've got from the uh, the various analysts. So he devised a technique based on a mathematical technique called singular value decomposition. And uh, this has now become known as LSA, and here's the, the key paper on LSA. I can explain it really fast, though. So let's imagine we've got some documents and I've just picked this example because it's one of the classic examples in, uh, in uh, LSA. Uh, they're all documents taken from mathematics, as it happens. They're papers in mathematics. And if you know anything about mathematics, you can see there's two sorts of papers there. There are papers about... Um, uh, uh, let's pick one. There's papers about partial differential equations. This one is, paper B4. And there's papers about uh, algorithms okay, um, Hamiltonian dynamic system, n body problems and so on, okay. And just for simplicity, we're only going to consider the underlined words here. The the, uh, authors of this paper are throwing away some words. This is very common, by the way, and I'll say a little bit about this later on. The the principled or unprincipled throwing away of data is extremely uh, common in text processing. And uh, you may well wish to ask yourself a little bit about it. How did they throw that information away? So one of the first things you could do is you could represent these list of documents as a matrix called a term-document matrix. So these are the underlined words. They're called the terms. Search people refer to search terms. And these are the names of the documents. So, for example, this says that the word algorithms appears in document B3. Uh, thank goodness it does, right? So we can look at this. Now, this is a raw count of um, uh, the number of times things appear in a document. And in this example, they only appear once, but of course they could appear multiple times. You know, if we had a paper that was called um, equations, 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 we would get a count of five. Did I do equations five times? You, You know what I mean. Anyway, this matrix is the basis of retrieval when we're talking about internet retrieval you know the the business of google or or um, text retrieval people are generally imagining this great big matrix here you could think of these as web pages and these are words contained on the web pages so the trick of the uh, uh of the uh lsa is to approximate this matrix in some uh way however i should just point out that you might work on this matrix which we're working on here which is the raw count as it might be called but we would probably um, do some pre-processing in order to make it a little bit easier Now I say probably because if I was giving this lecture maybe four or five years ago I would, have prob- I would have said we definitely do some pre-processing but things are on the move a bit in text processing so some of these standard things that we do probably aren't worth doing anymore and in fact may be hurtful but let's talk about some of them. So the first one, we've seen this already. I, I decided at the beginning of this example just to arbitrarily throw away some words. Now, we did it because we didn't want the matrix to get too big. But this happens all the time. And the words you throw away are usually called stop words. And they're called stop words because they stop your system working. Okay. Now, words like um, the, the, is uh on you know at those sorts of words they appear everywhere so you say well let's not bother counting a number of times at appears in anything if we just not let's not strike it out so if you're interested um on the transcript you can find a little reference that will take you to a list of stop words in a variety of languages they are i was going to say they are completely arbitrary i mean well i think i will stick with that They, they are in the minds of a designer somebody says Oh, I'm not interested in those words. They won't be useful. Strike them out. Well, obviously, they depend on the designer, they depend on the domain, and all of that makes you feel a bit sort of creeped out. And we don't like arbitrary and whimsical things. So, uh, stop words are common. The other thing that might happen is that words emerged on the basis of their stem, so their morphological root. So, um, let's uh, think of an example. Um, yeah uh, fish fishing fished fisher would all uh, be converted to the word fish now you might protest that a fished and fisher are not the same thing at all uh, and they're not okay it's another big approximation that's made in a lot of conventional text processing systems but you've just got to narrow the, the space down a bit so Stemming is common, and you can download and use the standard stemmer, which is called the Porter stemmer if you like, and uh, use it again nowadays you know talking telling people about stemming is a sort of lovely thing to do in undergraduate courses on information retrieval because it, you can absorb another an hour and a half telling people about stemming algorithms and by the way, if you're teaching in Hebrew or Arabic, then you could probably absorb three hours because it's much more complicated stemming those languages than it is humble old English um, but I suspect nowadays it's not worth doing. We'll just let the artificial intelligence speak about it. What is worth doing and what is commonplace is not to use the raw count, but to divide not only by the number of times that term appears in all documents, but also work out how informational that uh, term is and to normalise by that. So when I say informational, I'm using the Shannon information, which we sort of talked about a little in the, in the first lecture of this series. All of which allows us to approximate this thing on the left, which is a visualisation of that matrix, with something over here. And the important thing about this approximation, you either know how singular value decomposition works, in which case those of you in the audience who know are feeling smug and full of yourselves, good for you, or you don't. You don't need to know. What you have to know is... I can use just two dimensions to approximate this thing. So there are two little vectors and with a little bit of fancy multiplication, I can recreate this approximate version of it. So I can visualise those um, things on a little graph like this. And uh, I don't know if you can see this, but there's a sort of um, uh, cluster over here which are to do with differential equations. And there's a sort of distance over here, that's to do with algorithms. Remember we had two sorts of documents in my original. One was to do with algorithms and they're all down here and these words are all up here. So this allows you to sort of express concepts in terms of linear combinations of words. Um, It's a bit like, um, you know, um, expressing... You say, well, what is rage? And you say, oh, well, rage is is 50% anger and 50%... um, 50% foot foot stamping and 30% flushing um, um, and 20% flushing and 10% fist shaking. You know, Um, that's exactly what LSA allows you to do. It allows you to put numbers against these percentages. So, of course, when you get some new document, what you can do is just project it against these concepts and work out where it sits in the space. So, if you're going to go and do some machine learning, this is terribly handy and useful. That said, LSA really has failed to deliver, in my opinion. I mean, it's it's very commonly talked about in undergraduate courses, but it's really too simple in order to be useful to us. The concept is useful, which is this vector space, and in this space of numbers we have these concepts, but the mapping it provides is really a bit too primitive. However, help is at hand, and in roughly 2013, somebody introduced a new mapping, which... It's had a big impact on the field, and that mapping is called Word2Vec, and I'll, ex- I'll talk a little bit about it in a moment. But I thought I'd start by showing you some of the cool things you can do with Word2Vec, um, and this is some uh, nice work by well, it's a nice blog actually by someone called Casper Beline, who I don't know, but I, I'm admiring of, of, the, of the blog. Um, what they did was they took all of the statements from uh, female MPs in the House of Commons from 1945 to 2014 now this is a sort of standard thing to do in social sciences and humanities and you can see it's a bit of a problem what you'd like to do is you'd like to look at all of this text and to come to some conclusions about how female lawmakers if that's what you're interested in and that's what this person is interested in are expressing things well you can imagine you can imagine the debate you have over that. You know, you'd sort of make a list of the words and then you'd have to deal with the synonyms and then you would have to argue whether the fact that somebody uses a word a lot means anything. We've just seen that argument, You know, the stop words, what are they doing there and so on and so on and so on. So what this person did was they mapped them into uh, a nice little space and they've managed to produce this graph. Each one of these represents a word and each one of these lines is an indication of closeness. So I've zoomed up. Uh, one at the part of the graph here, and you can see here are some of the concepts that have been discussed uh, by female MPs. Uh, f- uh, I think this is fairly recently, actually. Now, a couple of things to observe. Some of the words in this graph were never used by female MPs, I'm pretty sure. Right? Uh, I'm fairly sure about that because no one in the United Kingdom uses the word math to describe mathematics. Right? We call it maths. Right? Maybe illogical to call it maths, but we don't use the word math. So what the hell is this doing here? Well, they probably used a pre-trained network, which is probably trained using an American text. So what's happened here is you've got this retraining stuff that's overlaid on top of the existing uh, training, which is very helpful. They can also then split this into concepts. So what this person has done is they've interested in the concepts that have been important by female MPs over the ages. And I'm not sure how scientific this is I'm not sure this has actually been peer-reviewed but it caught my attention uh, because it's quite dramatic so these are the concept clusters okay so from the period 1945 to 65 they found these three clusters of important discourse by female MPs and you can see what they're about you know they're about uh, what's the first one about cleaning really and then this is about um, uh, foodstuffs isn't it and this is about sort of commodities And I assume what's happened here is we're just coming out of post-war rationing. Um, So these are quite sort of consumptive uh, concepts. And then these are the concepts in this period, you know, the 1960s through to almost the current day. We've got um, transport, uh, sexual harassment and or violence and uh, politics of reproduction. Now, what I like about this really is that the concepts have emerged from the data without, um, you know, too much debate amongst people about um, a lot of sort of minor semantics about the words. Really rather nice bit of text processing. And I thought I'd start with this because it's one of the more interesting applications. Of course, there are a very great number of mundane um, Applications and um, one that sprung to mind, partly as a result from the last lecture, was the problem of um, fake reviews. I don't know if you noticed, but which magazine is currently um, pointing out how superior it is? As a uh, which magazine is a British consumer magazine, and it, it uh, uh, is fond of pointing out that it's extremely superior methodology for comparing products because it doesn't rely on reviews. So uh, the spotting of fake reviews on TripAdvisor, Yelp, and various other places has become a standard problem in artificial intelligence. Made a lot easier by Yelp, I think it was Yelp, yeah, collecting a vast number of both genuine and fake reviews. So they used, I think they use sort of intelligent sources to gather fake reviews. You can spot some fake reviews by the fact that, you know, if a thousand reviews all appear from one IP address in a space of ten minutes, they're probably fake. You know. Um, so this has proved a really useful source of uh, stuff for machine learning and in fact well I'm sure you know you can just go online now and tell whether reviews are genuine or not Um, this is uh, one of my favorite websites that does this this is fake spot anyone used fake spot oh it's great it's always good fun this is um, I picked this because Uh, This was the hotel I was staying last week and I thought, ha, 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 I will just check some of these suspiciously positive reviews about this hotel. Uh, I'm happy to tell you that the uh, IBIS in Riyadh has an A rating, no fake reviews there then. Um, And what it's done is it's gone through all of these reviews and it's classified them as true or fake on the basis of, you know, um, a set of rules. And like with all deep learning, not entirely sure what those rules are... Um, most, one of the clues for fake reviews, by the way, if you're interested, is um, lack of detail. Okay? Fake reviews are often, uh, you know, say this place is amazing or, or very bad. Um, fake reviews are becoming a bit of a problem because of this uh, problem called crowd turfing. So crowd turfing is where I, I pay someone $3 to write either a very nasty fake review about one of my competitors or a most excellent review about myself. And it's sort of ruining the, the review space. I'll come back to it in a moment. Right. Now, what about this word-to-vec mapping that I was talking about? Well, word-to-vec mapping it uses a form of deep learning called a bottleneck. And I talked about bottleneck learning in the last lecture. But the idea is uh, really quite a, a simple one. What we're going to do is we're going to take maybe five words in sequence. And that's going to fo- they're going to form the input to our network. And I'm going to miss out, I'm going to so plus or minus two words around a word. And then the network architecture is going to go to this narrow part here, maybe a thousand numbers here. And then I'm going to learn out again to relearn those words on the output. So this is a funny looking network. It's a network that's trying to learn its input uh, with the were missing word in the centre. The advantage of this is we're not interested in the output. The output is just a learned version of the input what we're interested in is a thousand numbers in the middle and that's the internal representation that the network is being forced to use in order to solve this problem so that's a vector so what we're essentially doing is we're asking a neural network to learn itself uh, learn its input and then we look at the internal representation the neural network is using and say that is a vector it's a sort of that was totally non-transparent in the sense. It's not at all obvious. You can't just look at these numbers and and know what they mean. You have to have uh, the inputs uh, there in order to give them some sort of semantic meaning. But it's uh, bottleneck learning. And Word2Vec um, has been remarkably successful at at doing this uh, problem. It was dreamt up by a a Czech researcher who I I suspect was frustrated by the the complexities of the Czech language and the sort of mangling it got in a lot of um, search engines. And the task he set himself was he said, well, I, what I want to do is let's think of this um, word-to-vec system as a, as a mapping. So if I put in the word France, I'm going to get a number out in my thousand-dimensional space. So I, I say France and this little number comes out here, which I'll represent in my sort of uh, two-dimensional space around my head. So that's, that's France. And he says, right, um, now let's say Paris. Okay, well, Paris is over here. And then he does something really quite dramatic. He said, well, there's a distance between France and Paris in this space. Now then, where does Rome appear? And he says, well, Rome's over here. And he says, oh, OK. Uh, sorry, where does Italy appear? Let's, Italy's over here. Right, let's move this vector over here. Where does that point? It should point to Rome. It does. So when this um, happened, this was really very, very dramatic discovery. Um, you've discovered a space in which um, uh, the vector for France minus the vector for Paris plus the vector for Italy equals Rome. So this is an example of him doing this problem. So he says here, well, if uh, Paris is to France, then if I put in Italy, my network should output Rome, which it does. And if I put in Japan, it should output Tokyo. If I input Florida, it should output put Tallahassee and so on and so on and so on now are they all correct I'm just looking for one that might be wrong um a little tinkery I think he's picked them all right hasn't he um yeah so neat um ah there we go an error at last uh where are we google yahoo uh here yeah you're right thank god Right. Okay. So Steve Barmer is was the chief executive of Microsoft. Uh, Jobs was the chief executive of Apple. I can't remember them. Is it Bill? Nearly. But Yahoo is not a, a person. So there are errors. Okay. But this is really. This was a really. You know, it was a wonderful trick when it first uh, came out. And we've now got a way of doing word machine learning. We stuff our words in and, uh, you know, you can imagine that there's, there's hours of lectures on the, absolutely the way this works and all of the little nuances and fiddles that you have to make to make it work in various domains. But that's the basic, the basic principle Word2Vec works beautifully. And, of course, once you've got that, you can do all sorts of exciting things. Um, so, for example, you could run a machine learning problem where the input was some information about a restaurant say you say this is a chipotle mexican grill and it's on merriam parkway in las vegas and please could you output a five-star review please Um, and you could learn all of those and then you could produce a set of reviews here are four of them and i can tell you that one of these reviews is machine generated so I don't know if you can see them at the back. I'll read them to you. Review one is, I have never had a bad experience here. The staff is very nice. The place is clean and the portions are generous for what you are getting, what you're getting, sorry. Two, great, Chipotle is my favourite. This location is beautiful and close to home. Service is always on point and the food is awesome. Three, I love Chipotle. It never fails me when I'm starving. I like the fact they use free-range meat. Four, I was never too impressed by their other locations, but this one is great. They are quick and friendly and their food is always... And sorry, I chopped off the rest. Okay, quick straw poll amongst the physical audience. Um, who here would vote for... Just quickly raise your hand as I say the number. Who, who thinks the fake review is number one? Who thinks it's number two? Who thinks it's number three? And who thinks it's number four? I think I saw a slight preference from number two. One is the fake review... Um, Now there is a slight problem with all of these fake reviews in that you have to muck up the grammar and you have to do that because computers usually learn the grammar rather well Um, so they have probably added some uh, grammar obfuscation here to make it look real so this is always a slight problem often the training data is too too well written. Well, you're not alone in not being able to spot this fake review, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, when these authors, uh, nice Finnish authors down here, did exactly the same thing with a group of um, users, the users couldn't tell the difference. Um, uh, by the way, an artificial intelligence algorithm trained on these can easily tell the difference between fake and real reviews. There are there are hidden clues that are easy to spot, but humans find very difficult to spot. So that's really an example of of, uh, machine learning at work, and it's an example of machine translation. Now, just because I couldn't resist it, it's a a little bit of fun, this. This isn't machine translation. It isn't state-of-the-art, but it is a little bit of amusement. Um, Some enterprising graduates at MIT wrote a text processing system that would produce fake papers. Uh, The provost of Gresham College is a chap called um, Sir Richard Evans, And I've always fancied writing a paper with Sir Richard Evans, so I wrote one, Um, here it is, towards the deployment of the look-aside buffer. And it's a fake bit of computer science. Uh, We all got very angry. um, uh, For many years, if if you're a professor of computer science, you get these very badly written things saying, dear professor, we're extremely honoured to have your work. Would you mind submitting to this crappy conference? And you submit, and if you're foolish enough to submit, you will be stiffed for $800 of, of publication fees they're fake conferences so these guys were infuriated by this and they wrote a fake uh, computer science paper generator if you fancy writing a computer science paper just go to um, SciGen and you too ladies and gentlemen can have your own six-page paper it's absolute garbage but looks like um, a good paper Uh, needless to say they were astonished having written this paper when they found it was accepted by a number of irreputable conferences and to hammer home the point they decided that they would attend the conference as fake scientists. They dressed up in fake lab coats and gave fake talks that they had written a computer program to generate. Uh, needless to say, as often with these uh, situations, the conference organizers were furious and accused them of malfeasance and fraud and all sorts of other things. Uh, this seems to be a very common habit in, in science. I'm sure you, you've heard of the SoCal hoax, where... A well known physicist submitted a fake paper to a a fake journal and and spoofed them. This was all done automatically. Now, okay, the peak uh, of this sort of uh, business at the moment is probably um, uh, IBM. And I I like to pick a a sort of little example for each lecture. Last lecture, we looked at AlphaGo, which was a Google system, and to spread the love around a bit. I'm going to pick um, a system from IBM. But IBM's artificial intelligence is called Watson. Uh, Watson, I think, is really multiple artificial intelligences. And the, the peak attainment was IBM uh, got Watson to play the American TV game Jeopardy. Now, um I need to explain Jeopardy rather quickly. Um, it's, a, it's a complex game. The idea is that you're given, um, you're, you're given a sort of domain of knowledge, um, and the contest and a clue, which is called a question, but it's really a clue, like a crossword clue. And the uh, the contestants are expected to process this clue quickly and to give a to, and to give an answer, and they buzz in to get the answer. So I'm not going to show you the final game. The final game was really boring because Watson absolutely trashed the the two biggest champions ever in the history of a game were completely trashed by Watson. I'm going to show you a practice game. You can tell it's a practice game because there's a there's a cameraman. Muddling around and doing practice angles. This was uh, between one of the the contestants here are one of the creators of Watson and a journalist from Wired magazine Okay, and I just picked this because it shows you modern text processing at work
1: We start with a single jeopardy round everybody's locked in loaded Here's the categories that you will play for this round. Starting off with scene of the crime. Tennis vocabulary, anyone? Laundry detergent, always in fashion. Presidential rhyme time, followed by those animals frighten me. How do you feel right now, Miles? Feeling really bad. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. All right, yeah. no, I feel feeling strong. You're feeling strong. You gotta you gotta go into this with a positive outlook, don't Absolutely. you? Absolutely. Yeah. There's no other way there's, to do it. No other way to do it. Yeah. All right, Miles, you're in our first position. Right. If you're ready to go, we're gonna start us off. I am Where? ready. Let's do presidential rhyme time for two hundred. Please. Here we go. Barack's Andean pack animals. Watson. What is Obama's llamas? Obama's llamas. Oh, boy. Yes, okay. got it. That's what this category is all about. Barack's Andean pack animals, Obama's llamas. Good for $200, Watson. Go ahead. 400, same category. Here we go. George W's rumps. Watson? What is Bush's tushes? Bush's tushes. George W. Bush. Bush's tushes. Yeah, that's how we're going to do this, Miles. OK, I get it now. <laughs> <laughs> I get it. Thank you, Watson. Go ahead, Watson. 600, same category. Yep. Zachary's padded envelopes. Watson. What is Taylor's mailers? Oh man, Zachary Taylor's yeah, mailers, yeah. that's exactly uh, right. Twelfth right. president, Zachary Taylor. Go ahead, Watson. Same category, 800. 800, you're doing well so far. Herbert's strategic military exercises. Watson. What is Victor's electors? No. Miles? What are Hoover's manoeuvres? That is correct! You're on the board with $800! OK, well, you, you now know how Jeopardy! works.
0: It's quite hard, isn't it? It's like solving uh, British crossword clues. Um, it's a really impressive bit of language processing, I think. Um, because remember, you know, they're not all... Um, Poet, uh, poets, that, uh, poetry, poetic uh, couplets that rhyme with the, uh, the names of presidents. You know, there's a wide range of, of, of knowledge that uh, Watson has to understand. He has to do speech recognition to understand this guy. He has to very quickly process his memory banks and uh, answer all of these uh, questions. And then they insisted a buzzer was pressed, so some, somebody in IBM had to design a little electromechanical thing that went and press the press the buzzer and the uh, buzz in the head of the people and there's also some strategy um, there are different points on, different prizes on offer and so on and so on and so on uh, a very impressive bit of um, uh, text processing and i think particularly impressive given that the responses were learnt from previous jeopardy rounds so it's very sort of equivalent to to you or me sitting there watching jeopardy and trying to work out how to how, how to, to, to to solve it. So Watson, I don't think was you never know with these commercial demonstrations how much was sort of hardwired into the into the device. But the the claim is that um, Watson learnt not only the answers but really the methods for producing the answers. Okay, so um, that is probably the apex of achievement in current text processing but I just wanted to draw your attention to a couple of uh others it's very common isn't it for people to uh sort of disparage this performance and say oh well you know of course computer could never be creative you know when a computer produces a sonnet I shall you know I, I shall hang up my hat um okay well there is a sonnet generator um and um various people um this is, the, uh, this is actually the winner of the auto-sonnet um, competition, which runs uh, I think it runs every year now. Um, and I have to admit that I am not a particular expert on poetry or sonnets, but it sort of looks like a sonnet to me. And I was also slightly uh, entertained by a slightly more sophisticated system, one of the recent prize-winning papers uh, on text processing, where the challenge is to learn from an image... A poem. So the way they did this was they got, um, I think it's about thirty thousand um, image poem pairs uh, together, and they also got I think about a hundred thousand poems just sort of sloshing around. And so they learnt not only what a poem looks like, so it should have, you know, proper uh, meter and so on, but they also learnt the mapping from the image to the poem. It's quite impressive, isn't it? You know, so this one here: uh, the sun rays struck my face, warm tingles to my fingertips the light showed me a path well there is a path there I should walk down I spoke and whispers of breeze told me to close my eyes I lost my way in a paradise so um, this was again tested so when you do these problems uh, you really need to test them against uh, humans and um, naive humans uh, cannot tell these poems from the real thing as my recollection however experts can currently tell them from the real thing so there's an interesting area that has been explored in the sort of final few minutes of this talk really which is the connection between these uh, systems that are based on information science and they're able i've talked about systems that can work with images i've talked about systems that can work with sound and uh, we've talked about learning in this series and today we've talked a little bit about text the question that comes to mind i think is what how can this be applied in the fields of creativity and I'm happy to tell you that that is the final lecture in this series which takes place on the 20th of May and we're going to look at whether computers can ever be artistic. Thank you.